From there, we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. One day, as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God and they have come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and instantly it left her. Her master's hope of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundation. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, Stop! Don't kill yourself! We are all here! The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, Good morning. My name's Stephen. I'm a deacon here at Sojourn. It's good to be here with you. Um, Have you ever known someone or have you ever had a really good experience? Uh, And about uh, six to eight months ago, it seemed like everybody on the internet had the same good experience. You just couldn't get away from it. And it was this thing called Stranger Things on Netflix. It seemed like everyone I knew was posting something about this awesome new TV show. It was incredible. Uh... And honestly, I was kind of just getting sick of seeing how much it was just like, it can't be that good, guys. Like, it's not that good. No TV show is that good, especially if it's like creepy weird. I don't like creepy weird stuff. Uh, And it's like, it can't be that good. But I kept seeing it and seeing it and seeing it. And so finally, I was like, all right, I'm just going to watch it. And like, so I sit down to watch it, kind of like, it's not going to be that good. And about an hour later, I was like, Liz, Liz, come see this. Uh, it was so good. I really enjoyed it. And I had a really good experience with it. And what was funny is after that, I started noticing people were going to do anything they could to find a way to talk about it. Uh, and what I know, like, it was so weird. You'd say something like, you know, I was sick one day and I was just coughing up this stuff. And the other person would be like, hey, did you know stuff is a noun that acts like a pronoun? And so is things. Things is a noun that acts like a pronoun. Speaking of that, have you seen Stranger Things? And it was like, oh my gosh, you just couldn't get away from it. It was like you couldn't really fully enjoy the whole experience unless you told somebody about it. And it seems as humans, that's what we do. When we really experience something good, it's like we can't really fully enjoy it until we tell somebody else. And as Christians, we have good news. That's what the gospel literally means, good news. And yet... 
it seems like that when we ask or we tell people what is the gospel, we say, you know, it's that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. And yeah, that's part of the gospel. And it, and it is, it's, it's good news, but it's just kind of like old stale news. It just doesn't, doesn't get people excited. We're not excited to tell other people about it. And maybe that's fear. Maybe that's just not sure what to say. Um, but this morning, I hope to look at these passages that we just read so that we can see how the gospel is good news for these three different people in three different ways. And we want to see a full picture of the gospel. And that it's not, it's not only Jesus died on the cross for your sins, which is absolutely true, but it's Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins to get you into the kingdom of heaven where you can be united with Jesus. And this is all done by his grace. It is a gift to you you cannot deserve. And this is good news. This is the gospel. And believe it or not, you want to share this with people. Whether or not you feel that trepidation about it or whether you feel like, man, I should do this. I'm not trying to say you should because we all know we should and we feel bad for not doing it. I'm saying you want to. We just got to remember it. And so here's what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look over these three different passages and we're going to see how the gospel is good news for the religious. We're going to see how the gospel is good news for the outcast. And we're going to see how the gospel is good news for the indifferent. Again, we're going to see how the gospel is good news for the religious, the outcast, and the indifferent. So if you've been with us, you've known we've been going through the book of Acts. Last week, we were studying Acts 15, and that's where we have um, Paul He's been preaching the gospel. You are saved by grace, not by works. There's nothing you can do to be saved. And these guys come in and say, well, you also have to get circumcised. And Paul says, no, that's not true. And they say, yes, it is. And so then they go down to Jerusalem and they say, hey, pastor leaders, guys, is this true? Are we really saved by grace? And they deliberate and they say, absolutely. And Peter's like, we are all saved by grace. There's nothing you can do. Paul, keep going. And so Paul was gonna take Barnabas and go on that second missionary journey. You know, if you flip in your Bible and you look at the maps at the end, it's that second missionary journey. That's what this is. So Paul's about to go on that. But then in the beginning of Acts 16, he and uh, Barnabas get in a tiff about John Mark who bailed on him earlier. And so Paul says, I'm not going with John Mark. And Barnabas says, well, I'm not leaving without him. And so they just split. Uh, And then on their way, on their travels, uh, Paul takes Silas with him. And so he's got Silas and then they meet Timothy. And you know, Timothy from first and second Timothy, that's the guy Paul is writing letters to. And so then Paul wants to go to Asia, but they can't get into Asia. And so then he has this dream about a guy from Macedonia who wants to have them come to Macedonia. And so Paul heads to Macedonia, which is Philippi, which is where we get to Lydia. Because Lydia is the first woman they meet in Philippi. So here's, what you, uh, here's the first point. This is where we're going. Is the gospel is good news for the religious because it's good, the good news is that you can stop trying to save yourself. So here's what we see. In Philippi, it's like modern day New York. It's a real, it's a center of commerce, lots of things happening, not a big Jewish presence. So there's not a great place for them to gather inside the city. So they would have been gathering outside the city. So Paul is looking for some Jewish people and he goes and he's wandering around and he sees Lydia essentially leading like a prayer study. And so he goes up to him and he starts talking to him. And here's what we read. He says, one of these One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. So we learned two important things about Lydia really quickly. And that is, first, she was uh, was a merchant of expensive purple cloth. So in her society, 
she would have been like the lady who owns the fancy boutique downtown and lives up in the knobs. Like she's got her stuff together financially. She's secure. The second thing that we learn is that she worshiped God, which is shorthand uh, for essentially saying she's a pretty good lady. Uh, this is like in Southern Indiana, she would have been a good lady who went to church, gave money, and everybody who thinks is like, she's just an all around good gal. Um, but the thing that is odd in this passage is that when Paul talks to her, the Lord has to open her heart. So here's the question is what in the world would Paul have said to this good religious lady that it wasn't something just rationally that she was like, oh yes, this makes sense, but that God would have to intervene to open her heart to it. And we don't know exactly what he said to her, uh, but in his letter to the Colossians, which is like his introductory letter to Christians that he doesn't know, uh, he says this, so, I am, so we can with pretty good confidence assume this is the same message he would have been saying to Lydia. He says, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. So let's break that down. And just says that you were far from God. You had separated yourself from him, yet he reconciled himself or us to himself. He brought us into his own presence. And now we stand before him based on what he did, not based on what we did. And so this is why this is, the Lord had to open Lydia's heart. It's because what Paul is essentially telling her is all this religious stuff you're doing is great, but it's just not enough. You cannot save yourself by doing all these things. And now this is where we get to the point where everybody in here is like, yeah, I know it's not, it's a, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And yes, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Yeah, I, I get all that, you know, fine. But the problem that I've, I've seen in people, especially even in myself, is the thing that even though I know I'm a sinner saved by grace, I still think I'm doing okay at this love God, love people thing. Like I'm not bad at it. And the problem is, that it doesn't seem like there, there is no better sign that you're a legalist than when you start thinking, yeah, I'm doing okay at this love Jesus thing. And what's funny is there's a guy named William Law and he says it like this, you have no greater sign of confirmed pride than when you think you're humble enough. And it's the same way for religious people. We don't think we're good religious people. We just think we're good enough. And the problem is, is when we think we're good enough, nobody thinks they're a legalist, right? Because if you, if you confronted somebody and say, hey, you know what? You know, you've, you've just got some legalistic tendencies at play in your life. What would they say? I'm not legalistic. I'm right, right? I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm being right. And so there's no real confronting legalism. You need to kind of ha have a way to diagnose it from the side. And so here's my diagnostic question. Uh, that I found, and I think it's fantastic. How much time do you spend critiquing and correcting other people? How often does your mind think of all the ways that the people around you are failing? How often does your mind go to how much and how often you're failing?
if that's where your mind goes to rather frequently, then let me suggest you may struggle with legalism. So what do we do to pursue Christ-likeness in the face of this? I'm gonna suggest that we try to think of ways to be encouraging and thankful instead of critical and corrective. Here's what legalism says. It says, we've all screwed up, we've all messed up, and now we are responsible for getting ourselves back into God's good graces. But what does the gospel say? The gospel says the same thing. You've screwed up, but not you've got to get yourself back into God's good graces, but I'm going to bring you back into my good graces by what Jesus has done for you. And if that's the case, then we don't have to be so afraid and concerned about making sure we can get it right but rather we can be thankful for the way that God is acting in our lives and we can encourage people to pursue Christ-likeness rather than forcing them and critiquing them and correcting them. How often does Paul talk about encouraging brothers and sisters? And that is where we wanna be. That is where pursuing Christ-likeness leads us away from critical correctiveness that is based out of this fear of trying to get it right to a place of thankfulness and encouragement where we realize Jesus has already made us right. And so the good news for the religious person is you don't have to save yourself. And this is part of the gospel. And so that's the good news. There's gotta be somebody that wouldn't it feel so good to look them in the eye and just be like, you don't have to save yourself. You've been saved. You don't have to do it anymore. This is good news that we want to share. Not that we have to, not that we feel like we're guilty for not doing this, but we get to share this. We want to share this. This is really good news. But not only is the gospel good news for the religious, the gospel is also good news for the outcast. And the gospel is the good news for the outcast because it says to the outcast, you belong. So, we go back to the story, we see that Paul's been in Philippi a couple of days and he heads back down to the place to pray and they run into a slave girl. And this girl is demon possessed. And here's what we read that she does. She goes behind him saying, these men are servants of the most high God and they have come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. Now, it's kind of interesting to me, why would Paul be so upset that this girl is following around them, behind them, essentially telling the truth, right? She's kind of like free press, you would think. Uh, you know, just right behind them, these are the servants of the Most High God telling you the way to be saved. Like, that seems like a good thing. Uh, but Paul gets so, quite literally, thoroughly and sickingly tired of this girl that he then commands the demon to come out of her. And so I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to be in that situation. And what came to mind is kind of like an SNL skit uh, where, you know, these guys show up into town and this girl's kind of like, these men are the servants of the most high God telling you the way to be saved. And they're like, okay, all right, it's great. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, appreciate that. And then they keep on. And then, you know, they're talking to somebody in Philippi and all of a sudden this girl like pops around the corner and she's like, these men are servants of the most high God telling you the way to be saved. And they're like, okay, knock it off, for real. Like, we're done, okay. 
And then they like go to dinner. They've been invited to somebody's home and they're sitting there, they're dining together. And then like out from underneath like the tablecloth, she like pops her head up and she's like, these men are servants of the most high God telling you the way to be saved. And they're like, enough. Okay, we're done. And so when Paul says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her, the demon comes out. And it's kind of funny to think about how thoroughly and sickeningly tired he would have been. But when you think about this girl's situation, it's actually, it's, it's really sad. If, if Lydia had been the, the wealthy merchant, the girl who owns the boutique living up in the knobs, then this slave girl would have been the homeless girl living down underneath exit zero. And these men who owned her were essentially prostituting her for this divination thing. She was being completely exploited. And if the only thing the gospel has to say to her is the good news is that your sins are forgiven. Jesus died on the cross to forgive you of your sins. You can go to heaven now. That's helpful. That's good. It's part of the good news, but it doesn't do anything for her in the moment. It's essentially saying, hey, you can get to go to heaven when you die, so just stick it out. But that's not the only part of the good news. The good news also includes what Jesus said when he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. So how is the idea that the kingdom of God is at hand good news for this demon-possessed slave girl? Well, first off, you gotta ask, well, what is the kingdom of God? Very simply put, it's the, it's the place where God reigns. So what's so good about where God reigns? Well, where God reigns, things begin to be made right. And when the kingdom of God comes invading this girl's life, the demon has to flee and she is no longer able to be exploited. It changes her life completely. So not only are her sins forgiven, but her present physical life is changed because the kingdom of God has come to hand. She is now part of the mission of God. She is now part of the family of God. She has been saved. She belongs. And this is true of all of us in this room. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you belong. And if you don't, the good news is that if you want to belong, you can. The problem is, it seems like everybody still at some point feels like they don't belong. And what I've noticed, I mean, it's just talking to church members and other Christians around, just people feel like they're still on the outside looking in. People feel like, you know, I, I've been doing the church thing for like five years and you know, I serve on the, the, the hospitality team and then I like work with kids and then I, I go to community group and I serve at the soup kitchen. Like I do everything I'm supposed to be doing and it just doesn't feel like I'm connecting. It just feels like everybody else is a part of this thing and I'm just outside looking in. And so the question is, is if we really belong, if that's true, if the kingdom is at hand in our lives and we belong, how do we fight back against that? How do we fight back against the idea that we feel like we're all outsiders? And here's my idea. We're gonna see if it works. You should go to your community group. If you're not in a community group, you should get in a community group, get to a place where people know you a little bit. And then you're gonna go to the community group and you're gonna tell them the thing that scares you the most. 
And I don't mean the thing like spiders. Uh, I mean the thing that scares you that people might find this out about you. The thing that if you're, you're afraid that if like people knew this, they'd look at you funny. And the things that I'm thinking about is something like, you know, I've been doing the church thing since I was seven. And sometimes I just don't know if God's even real. Or something along the lines of, you know, I want to be married. I've been trying to be married. Um, It just doesn't seem like there's anybody out there for me because it just doesn't feel like I'm good enough. And being around this group and everything, it just, I always feel like I'm not good enough. Or the other one is sometimes, you know, some days I have to, it takes everything within me not to want to bail on my family. Some days it just sounds so good to leave it all behind and just forget it. And I, I don't know what it is that, that you're afraid of, but these are the things that we should share to bring this vulnerability into our community. The question is why? Why even do this? It's because that if we don't do that, we start to put up these kind of holographic images of the people that we think we need to be to be in God's family. Like, we're already in God's family, but for some reason we start thinking, well, now that I'm in, I gotta start acting like it. And we put up this fake image of ourselves that feels hollow and empty. So no wonder our relationships feel hollow and empty because we're all dealing with this fake person over here. And here's the other thing. Have you ever noticed what like a fake person comes into your community group or into your life and it just feels like they have no problems. There's nothing they're afraid of. It's just like, everything's hunky-dory. You look at your friend and you're like, they're a robot. They're not real because humans have problems, right? And so if you're coming into a group and you're like, everything's good, I'm fine, you're fine, let's all pretend to be fine. Or we can also do this really dirty thing where it's like, here are the problems that Christians are supposed to have. And so I'm gonna be like transparent and honest and share all this stuff that I know I'm supposed to share. And it's this weird, dirty transparency that feels even faker than the, like, the fake good Christian person. And so you are the only person who really knows what you're afraid of. And there's some other things that you can share that will invite that vulnerability, but that's what I'm gonna suggest this week. If you have the opportunity to share with somebody the thing that you're afraid they're gonna find out, to invite that vulnerability, not because this will help you belong, but because you already belong. You're already in the kingdom. There's nothing anybody can think less of you that will make anything less of you because you are a son or a daughter of the king of the universe. You belong. And that's why the good news, that's why the gospel is good news for the outcast. It's because it says that you belong. Again, isn't that something that there's somebody that you wanna tell that to? There's somebody in your life that you're like, they need to hear that they belong. They need to hear, oh, it'd be so good to tell them that. The gospel is good news that we want to share. So finally, not only is the gospel good news for the religious, not only is the gospel good news for the outcast, but the gospel is good news for the indifferent because it means that this life matters. So if we go back to our story and we see that the owners of the slave girl get really mad at Paul and Silas for taking away their source of income, they start this kind of um, 
it's like a racist riot uh, because what they start doing is they say, these Jews were trying to convince us Romans that we should be saved, that we're doing something wrong. And in Rome, this is illegal. You're not allowed to try to proselytize. You're not allowed to evangelize, to convince somebody to come to your own religion. And so technically it's illegal. But Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. And so technically they're not supposed to be touched without a trial. But they bring these guys before the magistrates. The magistrates say, this is bad news, beat them. And so they beat them and throw them in jail. And here's where we meet the Philippian jailer. And the thing that we see kind of like very quickly in him is he just doesn't care. He's not concerned that these guys are in there singing songs after they've been beaten half to death. He doesn't take care of their wounds. He doesn't make chit chat. He just throws them in the stocks like they're supposed to be and heads out. And if Lydia had been this kind of merchant up in the knobs and the slave girl had been this gal at exit zero, then this guy would have been like the blue collar cop. He's just like former Marine type, really like everything's about practicality and function. Um, I mean, think about this. When he's about to realize like, I'm gonna get killed for these guys leaving uh, because the earthquake happened. Well, I might as well kill myself. Like he is just so practical and functional. Like this is a guy who's like, there's no place for emotions. Like we don't need those. And yet something changed in this guy. He goes from this indifferent Roman jailer to a guy who is literally trembling before Paul and Silas saying, what must I do to be saved? What changed? And I think it's as simple as the fact that the jailer was finally confronted with the fact that he was going to die. And I feel like that's us. We are kind of indifferent to the gospel until we face such suffering, such pain, such a taste of death that then it becomes important. That it's just, we're kind of indifferent. And nobody in here, nobody, right? You'd be like, are you kind of indifferent to the gospel? No, I'm here on Sunday morning. I care about this. But I think what we, the word that we could use that would show our indifference is how many of us are bored? How many of us are just bored by this Christian business? It's just a thing we do. And the good news for the indifferent is that this life matters. That the kingdom is at hand and not only is it gonna be here and now, but it's gonna be eternal. 2 Timothy 2.12 says that we are not only going to live right now, but we are going to rule and reign with Christ. Who you are becoming today is going to have an eternal impact on who rules the universe. So what you do today matters. The little, tiny, itty-bitty, mundane, unsexy, not thankful things that you do are shaping who you're going to be for eternity. So what you do today matters. And as I was thinking about this, I thought of the Karate Kid. I love, like, this is such a, like, great example. Because if you think about the Karate Kid, like, what's he, like, you know, he gets beat up, and then Mr. Miyagi comes in, and he's like, Daniel-san, uh, wax the car. And Daniel's like, what? Wax the car? You're like, you told me you were going to train me to fight. And he's like, wax the car, paint the thing. And finally, Daniel gets so mad. He's like, what am I doing? This is ridiculous. I can't believe it. Like, this is so dumb. This is so boring. 
And so Mr. Miyagi's like, Daniel-san, wax on. And so he's like, oh, fine. And he like does the wax on thing. And Mr. Miyagi tries to hit him and he like blocks the punch. And he's like, mind blown. It's like, this is incredible. I was training the whole time. And then he like figures out like all the dumb, mundane, silly things that he was doing were actually training him to become the person that he wanted to be. And that's what, that's what the gospel tells us is these dumb little silly mundane things that we do every day to love our neighbor as ourself, to take care of our kids, to love our parents, to not, try not to hate in our hearts. These are all the dumb little mundane things that we do to shape who we're gonna be for eternity. But not only do the things that we do matter, but the things that happen to us matter. The frustrations that you're going through, the suffering that you're going through, the day-to-day grind that you have to get through, that matters because that is shaping you. Think about this. When Jesus shows back up with the disciples, what does he still have from his, he's in a resurrected body. This is his new and resurrected body that can go through walls. And he's got holes in his hands still. He's got holes in his feet. What's that saying? It's saying the suffering that he went through in this life made him perfect. In the same way, the suffering that you're going to go through, that you've been through, is going to make you perfect. The marks that Jesus bore, that in this life would have said, this is a a man of shame and a man of sorrow, that when we see him in eternity, we're gonna look at those marks and go, those are marks of honor and glory. And your suffering right now is marking you for honor and glory in the future eternity in which you will rule and reign with Christ. This life matters. And isn't that good news? This isn't just a pointless runaround until we get to heaven. This life matters. The little things we do matter. And so that's why we have good news this morning. We've got good news for religious people that you don't have to save yourself. All that religious stuff that you're trying, it's not gonna work. But if you wanna be saved, you are saved. If you believe in Jesus and what he's done for you, he's already saved you. You don't have to save yourself. It's good news for the outcast because you belong. Even when you feel like you don't belong, the truth, which is greater than your feelings, is that you do. So now you can have courage. You can step forward and say, this is what it means to belong. And you can act like you belong. And the gospel is good news for those of you who just don't care because it means that this life is going to matter. This life has meaning. I, have, I love this quote by uh, Helen Keller when she's talking about how our lives aren't boring, but they're actually full of excitement. And she says this, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. God himself is not secure having given man dominion over his works. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. The fearful, the fearful are caught as often as the bold. Faith alone defends. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. And we're invited into the daring adventure. And now some, some of you are gonna feel that and feel like a little scared because it's like, well then if what I'm gonna do is gonna matter for eternity, I've got all this good news. And it's like, hey, guess what? The Lord is with you. He is shaping you in who, into who he wants you to be. So now you can step into that adventure knowing like you are being shaped by the most high into who he wants you to be. And this is good news. This is good news that we want to share.
And so this morning, as you come forward uh, and take communion, I just want you to, to consider that, to think about that. How is the gospel, the good news that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he brought you into his kingdom to be united with himself purely by his grace, how is that gospel good news to you this morning? What does that tell you that you want to share? Because there's something in that that you want to share deep down in your soul. And so as you come forward, consider that. Um, On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he says, this is my blood shed for you for the new covenant. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so as you come forward and you consider those things, um, we just ask that God would remind you that he did all of this for you, that his body was broken, his blood was shed, so that you could have good news. What we're gonna have up here is we're gonna have stations here and in the back. Uh, there's gonna be a glass of juice and a glass of wine. The wine has a piece of tr- twine marked around it. Uh, we're gonna have a gluten-free station over here to my left, your right, uh, if you need gluten-free elements this morning. Again, as you come forward, just consider How is the gospel good news to you this morning? Let's pray.